Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit more about mining topics that we touched on last week, but didn't get to fully dive into. And this is still surrounding the introduction of a new mining pool called Ocean, which aims to restore a certain amount of justice to the mining system. The existing mining pools have injustices in the way that they pay their miners and in the limitations in regards to what the miners or hashers to kind of reduce them to what they really are doing are able to actually accomplish and this is covered in detail. The technical details of this are covered in Stephen Livera's podcast. It's the podcast entitled Bitcoin Mining Decentralization with Ocean with Bitcoin Mechanic. That's SLP 528. A really good episode by Stephen Livera and the founder of Ocean explaining what problems exist in the existing mining pools and how Ocean is intending to solve those problems. I can really highly recommend that episode. But what I would like to talk about is the conflict that is sort of arising as a result of Ocean's entrance into the mining industry. And that conflict surrounds the issue of censorship. And why this comes to light now is because Ocean's founder, Luke, has taken the stance that ordinal inscriptions on the Bitcoin blockchain are a spam attack, in essence. And his new mining pool, one of the motivations for it, is to give the power back to the hashers to be able to determine which transactions go into a block. And in that way, one of his goals is to be able to filter out or censor, in the words of his critics, those spam transactions that are flooding the Bitcoin network as a result of ordinal inscriptions or additionally BRC20 tokens or their related transactions. So the problem that Ocean Pool is trying to solve is the problem that all the other mining pools indiscriminately process all those transactions that are essentially flooding the Bitcoin network and causing the transaction fees to become very high. In much the same way that gas fees on the Ethereum network have gotten to be very high. And so all along, it's been known that Bitcoin has what is called a scaling problem, which means that 
as more and more people want to transact on the Bitcoin network, they're going to hit a fundamental limit in terms of how many transactions can be processed per unit of time. And this is called a scaling problem, but I actually frown on that word, on that term, because I don't consider that a problem. I consider that part of Bitcoin's design. The limitation on the number of transactions per second, which is a consequence of limited block size and limited rate of block production. So blocks are produced every 10 minutes on average, and that's regulated, governed by the difficulty adjustments every two weeks. So that as hashing power increases, the difficulty also increases and therefore regulates how many blocks are produced per unit time. And that, in conjunction with the limited block size, basically puts a constraint on how many transactions can be processed per unit time on average. Because a block can only hold so many transactions and there are only limited blocks per hour. This is part of the old block size war that's still going on, in which the other side argued for unlimited block size, which would, in essence, allow an infinite number of transactions per unit time. This is actually unsustainable in reality because infinite block size would obviously mean impracticality and it would lead to Bitcoin nodes only surviving, only being able to handle blocks within their physical memory and hardware constraints. If a node runs out of storage space or RAM to process such large blocks, then they would essentially drop off of the network for all practical purposes. And in the end, this would lead to a centralization of the Bitcoin network because only large Bitcoin nodes would ultimately survive, ones that had unlimited disk space and memory and processing capabilities. And so in the end, that would leave Bitcoin nodes highly centralized in large computing environments, server farms and places like that, in contrast to how it is now and how it is intended that Bitcoin nodes are run by common people on relatively inexpensive hardware anywhere in the world. So the limitation of block size and ultimately the limitation of the number of transactions per unit time on the Bitcoin network is part of its design. It's an intentional feature and not a problem, a scaling problem as it is generally characterized. And what Bitcoin offers to compensate for this so-called problem is the layer two solutions, most notably the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network is another network of nodes, kind of independent in a sense from the network of Bitcoin nodes, wherein each Lightning node serves as a connecting point between the base chain, the Bitcoin blockchain, and the Lightning Network. And what it does is each Lightning node locks funds on the base chain into Lightning channels that connect to other Lightning nodes, which are also in turn locking Bitcoins on the base chain. 
and which are then able to exchange Bitcoin through those Lightning channels with other peers on the Lightning Network and relay them through the Lightning Network through arbitrary paths so that ultimately any node on the Lightning Network can, in theory, communicate Bitcoins to any other node on the Lightning Network within the parameters of the channels and how large they are, how much capacity they have, and so forth. And essentially what this does is it creates another network that has low fees, you know, essentially sub-percent. I mean, on average, maybe 0.2% will suffice for any transaction on the Lightning Network at this point in time anyway. And those transactions are, for all practical purposes, instant. And furthermore, they are decentralized to an even greater extent than the Bitcoin network itself, in the sense that the Lightning nodes interact on a peer-to-peer basis and do not involve a global consensus as the Bitcoin blockchain does. And so essentially, transactions between peers on the Lightning network are private between those peers. And other nodes on the Lightning Network, generally speaking, unless they're on the route, generally speaking, don't have any insight into what transactions are happening between peers on the network, unless they happen to be part of the route. And even in that case, they will not have full knowledge of what transaction they are relaying unless they happen to be one of the endpoints, in which case, obviously, then they are involved in the transaction and they know certain information. And so basically what this does is it adds a layer of anonymity to a degree, speed, because it's more or less instant and does not have the hindrance of needing to gain global consensus on the transactions, and low cost. And all these properties are built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain in such a way that there's a pretty good guarantee for the funds that are locked in those channels that the transactions are ultimately settled with finality, just like on-chain transactions. And ultimately, if push comes to shove and any player acts maliciously, those channels can be closed and the funds can be regained on chain. So essentially, the Lightning Network aims to give base chain security with all these other benefits that I mentioned of speed, cost, low cost, and greater anonymity. Essentially, if you want to think of it in terms of the base chain, the Lightning Network serves as a tab in which you can keep a running total of how much money you owe another party. And then at any point in the future, you can ultimately just settle that tab directly on the blockchain. And meanwhile, all these individual uh, running totals are kept in a cryptographically secure manner on the Lightning Network in such a way that at any point in time, the parties can just lock those funds back on the blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, and everything's good. So the Lightning Network, essentially what it does is it provides 
the solution for the so-called scaling problem. And what I would prefer and what I advocate for is for understanding Bitcoin as a system as being more broad than just the set of Bitcoin nodes and mining nodes and sort of all the things that are traditionally connected to the base chain. What I would suggest and what I advocate for is to understand Bitcoin as being broader than that and as being inclusive of the Lightning Network and perhaps other things as well, but especially the Lightning Network as part of what Bitcoin is. Even though Lightning nodes are technically independent from the Bitcoin network itself, in the sense that they are a layer entirely above the Bitcoin base chain, there is a relationship between them. And some of the features, for example, of the Lightning network are only made possible by specific upgrades to the Bitcoin network. In particular, the SegWit upgrade and the Taproot upgrade, both of those were made in part to support the capabilities of the Lightning Network. And so that fact in itself should justify expanding the Bitcoin concept, Bitcoin as a system, to include such things as the Lightning Network. That is part of what those upgrades were intended to enable. And therefore, even though the Lightning Network is an independent layer on top of the base chain, it should still be understood as part of the Bitcoin network, the Bitcoin system as a whole. And when you look at the Bitcoin system as a whole in that way, then this scaling problem can be recognized for what it is. It's not a problem. It's a design feature. It's part of how the Bitcoin system as a whole is designed with this separation of concerns between the base chain and the layer two solutions like the Lightning Network. And it is the Lightning Network that enables your daily instant peer-to-peer -peer transactions that, as you would expect, to be able to do anytime you go to a store and purchase a product or go to the coffee shop and purchase a coffee or go to the deli and purchase a sandwich for lunch. Things that you wouldn't use the Bitcoin base chain for because the fee would be prohibitively high for such a small purchase and the time to wait for block confirmation would be prohibitively long for such a quick purchase. Instead, you would use the Lightning Network for that and that's how the Bitcoin system is intended to operate. So I just wanted to make that point that Bitcoin should be understood as more than just the base chain. It should be understood as a larger system that includes the Lightning Network. And when we talk about paying for things with Bitcoin, making purchases with Bitcoin, that should be understood to include making purchases over the Lightning Network. Okay, so having said that, Interestingly, just going back to the mining topic with Ocean Pool, one of the things that they have emphasized is their intention to utilize the Lightning Network for payouts to the miners in their pool, particularly those with proportionally low hashing power, because it's not practical to compensate them directly through 
the Coinbase transaction in the block itself. Or just to put it in simple terms, it's impractical to pay them on the Bitcoin blockchain until their revenue has stacked up to the point where it makes sense to do a transaction on the base chain. With the Lightning Network, payouts can be made on a much more consistent basis in in lower amounts without losing a prohibitive amount to fees. So I guess it's kind of nice or interesting that the Ocean Pool at least does consider the Lightning Network as part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And that's, I believe, how it should be seen as part of the network. And now we can talk about how the Bible actually confirms that in a certain sort of way. And maybe we can just talk about that a little bit here. It's a really deep subject and a fascinating one. And I mentioned in the last episode a book called The Mystery of the Holy City. And basically, that book explains some of the latest and greatest findings concerning the prophecies of the book of Revelation and the meaning of the throne of God as it is described in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Ezekiel, and elsewhere in the Bible. And essentially, it comes to the conclusion or the observation that the throne of God is, in essence, a time machine, or to put it another way, one of God's attributes is the attribute of time. And this is something that everybody kind of knows in different terms, but it has never before really been made clear what that really means. We typically understand that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omniscient, all-knowing. Okay, these are commonly understood as the attributes of God. Those are the three attributes that make God who he is and that make him different from human beings or any other creatures. Okay, but in essence, if you really think about what those three attributes imply, they actually imply that God is time. And what that means is that he, in his nature, has the capability of what we would typically understand as a time machine. That is to say, he can move into the future and into the past arbitrarily, just as a time machine would allow. That's something that God is able to do just by virtue of being who he is. That's one of the characteristics of his being. That's what it means when we say God is time in the same way that we say God is love or God is just. These are attributes of his character that make him who he is. Now, just to kind of make that connection to the three attributes that we typically understand of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, if a person had this capability of a time machine and could step into the past, present, or future at will, imagine what that would enable. On the one hand, it would enable omnipresence, right? It, it would enable a person to be anywhere at once. How so? Well, let's say a person has this capability of time travel. They could go to point A at time T, okay? And then after that, they could go to point B 
and return to time t. And after that, they could go to point c and return to time t, the same time in every case. And so, as you can see, they have already been at point A, point B, and point C at the same moment in time. That process could be continued indefinitely until the person has been everywhere at one particular point in time. That is, in theory, omnipresence. Okay, similarly, omniscience is the capability of knowing everything. Now, if you had this ability to travel in time and place, obviously, then you could, in essence, go anywhere at any point in time and know any information by making observations at that place in time. And that is, in principle, the same as omniscience. Being able to go anywhere and anywhere and extract knowledge from, those, from that situation. That is, in essence, what it means to be omniscient, to be able to know anything from any point in time, from any location, okay? Now, how does omnipotence figure into this? Well, the Bible describes the power of God. Let me see if I can just find those verses right now. Okay, here's one example. Now, this principle can be seen across the Bible in many different places, and there might be even clearer examples than this, but I think this makes a very clear example. This is Isaiah chapter 10, and it says, it's talking about the day of judgment, okay? Verse 1 starts about woe unto the unrighteous, essentially. Verse 2, it says to turn aside the needy from judgment. It's describing the unrighteous things that they do. And it's talking about verse 3 here. It says, And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? So this is talking essentially about the day of judgment. When judgment day comes, which is the power of God, that's when God punishes the world. That's when he uses his mighty power to set the world right. This is deep stuff here, especially in connection with Bitcoin. God's mighty power in the day of judgment, which is the day of justice, the day when he makes things right, is expressed. How? Pay attention to how it's expressed here in these verses. And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help and where will ye leave your glory? And it talks about the Lord that with all the destruction that he causes or permits, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In verse 4. Verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, the wrath of God, that's the day of judgment, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. So the nations that come from afar, that punish the wicked, God says, they are the rod of his anger, and the staff in their hand is his indignation. It's his wrath. So the wrath of God, the judgment of God, his power is demonstrated through, in one case, the power of a nation from far away. It says in verse 6, I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God is saying that a nation that comes to war against the wicked is an agent of his wrath. 
He's the one that commanded them. He's, he's working through them. They are executing his power. They are acting on his behalf when they punish the wicked nations. Verse 7, it says, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So in other words, a warring nation doesn't understand that he's working for God, but that's how it is. He saith, verse 8, are not my princes altogether kings? In other words, they're doing what they themselves are setting out to do. Verse 9 names them. Verse 10, God is saying that their idols are nothing. Verse 11, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore, verse 12, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and Jerusalem, this is the day of judgment. This is when God destroys Zion and Jerusalem, his people, through other warring nations that come against them, he says, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. So Assyria, the nation that came against Jerusalem as the wrath of God, would also be punished ultimately for not recognizing God and giving honor to him and thinking that he has done all this in his own strength. Verse 13, for he saith, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, etc. in verse 14 as well. But verse 15 says, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift itself up, as if it were no wood. So in other words, God is saying, hey, to the, you know, he's saying to the nations, hey, you know, you're just an instrument, you're just a tool in my hand. So don't be proud. Don't boast yourself about your great accomplishments, because I am the one who's using you. Verse 16, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory shall he kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. Now that's a subtle description of the throne of God right there. And under his glory, in other words, his throne, he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. In other words, there's a fire burning under his throne. This is described in the book of Ezekiel. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. This is prophecy speaking in figurative language, okay? And basically it goes on in verse 21 and speaks about the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. So in other words, God punishes Israel, but in the end, a remnant returns to him. Verse 25, For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. So in other words, the wrath of God lasts for a little while, but then a remnant lives through that, comes out of that. And that's what the book of Revelation is ultimately describing. It's describing the final judgment, the wrath of God, through which the last generation passes and comes out alive. That's the remnant here that Isaiah is speaking of. Okay, and the point that I just want to emphasize here, though, is that the way God accomplishes his wrath 
as described in this chapter, is through the power of another nation that wars against his own people. In this case, it was Assyria. This has happened in many times in history. This is just one example of how God uses a nation from far away to accomplish his purposes. Now, this is spoken prophetically. This was spoken prophetically. In other words, before Assyria came against Israel, God prophesied it through Isaiah. And what that illustrates is the power of God, his omnipotence. The fact that before it happens, he has already orchestrated for a nation, in this case Assyria, to come against Jerusalem. He's already planned it long in advance. And this is connected to his ability to operate independent of time as we know it. In other words, you can think of God as having or being a time machine, and by going back into the past and orchestrating it such that Assyria would ultimately attack Jerusalem at some point in the future, in that way, God has accomplished his wrath upon Jerusalem. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of like cause and effect, and it's kind of like the butterfly effect. When God sees Jerusalem going astray, he goes over to the king of Assyria and whispers, hey, you know, and he, he whispers in Assyria's ear to go attack Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria does not recognize that that's God orchestrating things, but he simply has the idea to attack Israel. And he starts making his plans and preparing his armies and, you know, doing all the things he does so that ultimately in the future, perhaps in the next year or whenever, then he goes out and he attacks Jerusalem, not realizing that he is accomplishing the will of God and that God, simply through the butterfly effect, through making a small influence far away, he is causing his wrath to be executed upon his people Jerusalem at a future point in time. Do you see how a small thing in the past can make a huge difference in the future? I mean, that's one of the basic themes that is explored in almost all time travel films. You know, one small slip in the past can make a huge difference in the course of the future. And God describes his power his wrath against the wicked in exactly those terms, that from afar I will prepare a king to come and execute my wrath. From afar, from the past, because it obviously takes time for a nation to come from afar. This isn't something that happens instantly. So when God causes instant destruction, it started long ago. And that's another interesting point worth noting is that when sudden destruction comes, that doesn't mean it started just then. The way God works is he prepares things from far away. He prepares things in advance. And that's his mercy. He gives time for the course of evil to change. He gives time for people to repent. He gives time for people to change their ways. But ultimately, when they do not, then his destruction comes upon them suddenly as a nation comes from afar. It didn't actually happen all of a sudden. It's just that the effects came all of a sudden. That is how the power of God is described in the Bible. It's described in terms that can be understood 
as time travel. And essentially, that's what all prophecy is. It is telling the future. It is going to the past and revealing what the future will hold. That's something that is only possible through time travel. That is the power of God. That is his omnipotence, as well as his omniscience and his omnipresence. So you see, the character of God, what makes him God, what makes him greater than any other being, is in essence summarized in this one word, God is time. Okay? And this is to a large extent, explored in this book, The Mystery of the Holy City, and in other books related to it, including the book entitled God is Time and others. But The Mystery of the Holy City, in particular, is a study about the Holy City, as described in the book of Revelation. So I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so that was kind of a roundabout detour to kind of basically make the point that the throne of God, the seat of his power, is in concept a time machine. And this throne, this seat of his power, as described in the book of Revelation, has lightning coming out of it. In the Old Testament, it's described as a fire. Well, lightning is a type of fire, okay? And in old times, they didn't really understand it any different. When they talked about fire coming down from God out of heaven, that was what we would probably just call lightning. They didn't have a, a concept of electricity and, and the technical, physical reasons for the fire. They just saw the effects. They saw the light, and they saw that when this light struck the ground, it caused fires, and therefore they called it fire from God, from heaven. But to the modern eye, we would just say that was a lightning bolt, okay? And the book of Revelation describes lightning shining forth from the throne of God. So let's put this together now. Bitcoin consists of a blockchain, but that actually is perhaps better described as a time chain. Some people don't like that word, but that is actually the concept that was introduced in the original white paper, the concept of this time chain. And that has actually been re-emphasized since the block size wars in the maintaining of the block size limit because that constrains the amount of transactions that can be processed per unit time. That feature keeps Bitcoin connected, linked to time. If time were of no essence, you could have any number of transactions per block. But time becomes the limit for how much data you can put on the blockchain because of the block size limit and because of the block rate limit as well. There are, in essence, two ways to solve the scaling, the so-called scaling problem. One way would be to allow infinite block size, and that's what the block size wars were about. And the other way would be to allow blocks to be added at an infinite rate, which of course would be completely against the, the very design of Bitcoin. The whole consensus mechanism relies on this pacing of blocks approximately once every 10 minutes, this fixed pace, so to speak, of blocks. And 
when you look at it that way, you can actually argue that removing the block size limit would be sort of a way to defeat the time limit of 10 minutes per block. So, and it's interesting because this is the fundamental law of how Bitcoin operates. It's this time restriction. And that has a parallel in the spiritual world where God has a law and his law is something that mankind has been trying since the serpent in the Garden of Eden to throw off. In that situation, God's law manifested itself in the instruction not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was God's word. That was his law as expressed to Adam and Eve. And the serpent instigated rebellion against that law. He instigated freedom. He instigated for Eve to do her own thing irrespective of God's law and to go ahead and eat that fruit even though God had commanded man not to. So all through history, that has been the core contention between good and evil. Should we follow God's law or should we not? And Satan has been making the case for freedom, so-called. He has been making the case to cast off the restraints of God's law, whereas the people of God have been making the case for obedience to God's law and, in essence, maintaining that to obey God is what is best for humanity. Now, if you take the law of God, the laws of his throne, the laws of his kingdom, and you understand his power, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, as being summarized, boiled down, and expressed in essence in this one word of time, then you can understand how the time chain, the Bitcoin blockchain, as a financial system, forms the foundation of the throne of God, the foundation of his kingdom in the financial sense. This is deep, and this is why Bitcoin is so connected to time, and why this limit on the rate of blocks and on the size of blocks is so intrinsic, so fundamental to what Bitcoin is and its power. That's all connected to the characteristics of God's kingdom and to his very own nature being that he is time. And so when you look at it in this way, it's clear to see which side of the block size war is in the right. Not to say it's a matter of who's right and who's wrong. It's a matter of which system ultimately better fits the nature of God's kingdom. Which system is ultimately better suited as the financial foundation for a godly kingdom. And Bitcoin Core is the clear winner. Whereas Bitcoin Cash or any of the other forks of Bitcoin or any other altcoin that ultimately opts towards large blocks or infinite transaction bandwidth, these are all seeking to throw off the constraint of time, the constraint of God's law, so to speak, and to grant a kind of no-cost freedom that seems good on the surface, but the end result is basically that it won't work. And that's 
the same old argument as the people of God arguing that obedience to the law of God is the way of life, in contrast to the wicked who are arguing that freedom, freedom from the law of God is the way of life. No, that's the way of death. What we are seeing in the financial world is that same story playing out. Bitcoin is life. Bitcoin is the way of life. And I have explained in previous episodes how when a person works, they are investing their very life in what they do. And when they are rewarded in Bitcoin, that life is preserved forever on the Bitcoin blockchain. Whereas if you labor and are paid for that labor in any other form that deteriorates with time, whether through inflation or through physical deterioration of things you purchase, those things pass away. That's the way of death. If you work for food, that food perishes. If you work for dollars, those dollars are inflated away. If you work for lodging, that lodging ultimately depreciates and deteriorates. Everything wastes away. Everything decomposes. Everything dies except Bitcoin because it's entirely metaphysical. It's just information. It cannot decompose so long as there is a Bitcoin network. And the Bitcoin network is distributed all over the world. It's the most secure thing in this world. It's the one thing that man has made that has the potential to endure forever because it does not have a physical component. The money itself, the Bitcoin itself, the 21 million coins don't have a physical component. You could argue, yeah, the, the, the Bitcoin nodes are physical things and they can be destroyed and so forth. But that's where the distributed nature of the network comes into play. And the fact that computer hardware is constantly being upgraded and in essence, the Bitcoin network can last forever. There's no limit to how long it can last. And given its distribution around the world, there's really no limit to how long it will last because there will always be motivation for people to find ways to preserve it. So <laughs> the Bitcoin network is really the most resilient thing the world has ever known. It's the most resilient cloud, computer cloud, that the world has ever known because it's distributed all over the world. It's not locked up in a single data center or in a few data centers that could be destroyed with a handful of bombs. No, the Bitcoin network is truly distributed and it's the epitome of what a computing cloud should be. Now, keep in mind, the holy city in the spiritual writings is described as appearing in the form of a cloud initially. And in fact, this description is connected to the story of Jesus' birth when the star came down and guided the, the, the wise men to find Jesus. Now, the wise men were men, uh, kings coming from the east. The east are the, the children of the east that the Bible speaks of frequently. They are the Arabs, in essence. They were related a little bit to Israel uh, through Abraham, through Ishmael, and uh, through Esau, through those lineages. Those are where the Arabs generally came from. And they kind of mixed together and were referred to in the Bible as the children of the East. Children because they were children of Abraham, but they were the children of the East. The ones who Abraham sent eastward in order to keep the land of Israel for his chosen son, Isaac, and ultimately Jacob. 
Okay, so these kings of the East, they weren't Orientals in the sense of Asians, as sometimes we're tempted to think. They were simply Arabs from the eastern parts who were from the land east of Israel. And those were people who had prophecies in their midst, in particular the prophecy of Balaam that spoke of a star coming out of the constellation of Orion, which was then known as Jacob, a star out of Jacob. And these kings of the east, these Arabs, Arab kings who had been studying astronomy, who had been studying the prophecies that they had, they recognized this star that appeared in the constellation of Orion as being the sign of a king coming to Israel, being born to Israel. And therefore, they were drawn to travel to Jerusalem to find this king. And the star is what led them there, just as the prophecy said. And that prophecy of Balaam is recorded in the Bible as well, that a star shall arise out of Jacob, out of the constellation of Orion. All right, so... This is deep stuff, and I've covered this in other contexts, but it's relevant here in this podcast that's talking about Bitcoin because that star has been described by other prophets as being a cloud, a cloud of angels, but a cloud nevertheless. And remember that these things all have symbolic meaning. The prophecies are given primarily in symbolic terms. And so when this star is described as a cloud and it's seen coming from Orion, from the open space in Orion, Orion is known as a portal to other worlds. Ever since the beginning, when astronomers began to develop telescopes powerful enough to see the Orion Nebula, they described it as a portal to another world, to another realm to another kingdom, a kingdom of light. That is how they described the Orion Nebula. And the spiritual writings speak of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, descending from that open space in Orion, from that brighter world, that brighter realm, that kingdom of light, and coming from there down to the earth. And how did it come? It came apparently in the form of a star, But this star was in turn described as a cloud, which in symbolic terms we understand as a computer cloud, a cloud of computers, a cloud of angels, a cloud of computers, nodes, Bitcoin nodes operated by angels, operated by good people, operated by virtuous people that do it out of the goodness and good intention of their heart on behalf of humanity just like the angels who appeared at Christ's first birth, bringing good tidings, good news of great joy, because a king was born. Today, it's not Jesus being born as a king, being born in a manger as a baby. No, it's Bitcoin that's young, that's born, that is bringing kingship to individuals. It is we, as individual Bitcoiners, who are the kings, the sovereigns, the sovereign individuals, who, through their own keys, possess the power of their own coins. They hold the keys to their own kingdom. We are the kings and priests of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Bitcoin here on earth, which appears in the form of a computing cloud, just like the holy city brought 
the Savior to this earth the first time 2,000 years ago, enshrouded in a cloud, apparently just looking like a star, but actually being a cloud. Just like how comets and nebula often appear to be like stars, but cloudy. This is really, really fascinating stuff. And I just can't hold back from mentioning these topics here in this podcast as we're talking about Bitcoin in connection to the coming of Jesus. Jesus isn't coming back to this world to reclaim a bunch of wicked people. He's coming back to this earth to harvest, if you will, a remnant of kings who will serve as rulers of his kingdom, of his spiritual kingdom of light. And we're seeing that, we're seeing a reflection of that or a prototype of that in the way that Bitcoin is producing a world of kings, of self-sovereigns. And it remains to to be seen how this is all going to play out and ultimately how the game theory in the Bitcoin ecosystem is going to play out. But I think it's fascinating to consider all these topics. Now, we've talked about how Bitcoin is, in essence, a time machine of sorts, not the kind that you can travel in time with. But time is an important part of Bitcoin's mechanism, a critical part, and what makes it unique among all cryptocurrencies. Not only was it the first, but it's the only one that really meets all the criteria that are necessary for a foundational monetary system that's in harmony with God's principles. It has this time restriction combined with the block size restriction that makes it so that there is a finite number of transactions per unit time. And this in turn contributes to the market dynamics that we're seeing for the transaction fees. Without those restrictions, and this is this is why the big block proponents argue for big blocks, is because they say, oh, it would be better if we didn't have this time restriction because then transaction fees would be lower. And in a certain sense, that might be true, but ultimately, as I mentioned before, it would lead to centralization, which in turn means that those block fees would go to the centralized powers And ultimately, they would gain the power to set the block fees to anything they want, which would put us back into the same kind of system that we're in today, where the financial powers can just print dollars as many as they want and take as much value from the workers, from the working class as they want. And we would be back right back to the same kind of system that we have today, the legacy system. Only Bitcoin solves those problems, and it does so because of this intrinsic time limit of 10 minutes per block and the associated block size limit that makes it so that there are a finite number of transactions per unit time possible. That is a feature, not a scaling problem. And we need to see Bitcoin as encompassing the Lightning Network as the solution to that problem or as simply part of the design, just as it is described in the Bible, that the throne of God His time machine throne has lightning emanating from it. Interestingly, by the way, the lightning from the throne of God is also to be understood as the messages from his throne. God communicates from his throne to his kingdom, and he does that through the lightning that emanates from his throne. 
the light that emanates from his throne. Light is a symbol for knowledge, for enlightenment. And God, being the source of all wisdom, is the origin of light for his people. And that is communicated from his throne through lightning, from the time machine to the people through lightning. And in the system of Bitcoin, that is reflected by Bitcoin as the time machine, as the, as the monetary system that's locked into connection with time. And then on, on top of that, the next layer is the, the lightning layer, the lightning network, which transmits not only that financial information, but uh, in fact, just this week, I think it was mentioned, or it's been, I think, cooking up in various forms on and off, that you can send messages through the Lightning Network, not only money. And in fact, there are whole chat systems developed on this principle and so forth. And in that way, messages are communicated over the Lightning Network directly through the Lightning payments. And that's just a beautiful illustration of how the Lightning from the throne of God has this messaging function in the spiritual sense, the Lightning literally represents the messages of enlightenment from the throne of God. But in the financial system of Bitcoin, the lightning payments are actually nothing more than messages. They're messages that are primarily intended to communicate financial information, but which can also include arbitrary information, arbitrary text messages to the recipients of those payments. So, in total, the Bitcoin network, inclusive of the Lightning network, is together a representation of the kingdom of God, as described, as prophesied in the book of Revelation. This is fascinating, fascinating stuff. And we're just scratching the surface. We're just looking at the obvious things. And so I guess this all kind of then comes back, if we can just kind of tidy this all up and bring it back, we come back to the topic of the ocean mining pool, which is the first Bitcoin mining pool that really intends to pay its people directly through Bitcoin's mechanisms, namely the Coinbase transaction in the blocks that are mined themselves. And for those miners who are participating on a smaller scale, who have a, a much smaller percentage of the hash rate and aren't earning enough to be able to get paid directly through the Coinbase transaction, the Ocean Pool is planning to pay them through the Lightning Network, but still in connection directly with how they are working to support the mining effort on a block-by-block -block basis. In other words, their earnings are going to be tied directly to the work that they're performing, and they're going to have the rights of a miner to vote for the transactions that go in the block and for the flags that are signaled by the miners in terms of, you know, what upgrades to enable and things like that. These are issues that the ocean pool is setting out to solve, and part of their plan does include the Lightning Network, which I think is wonderful in that it aligns very nicely with the spiritual concepts 
of how the kingdom of God should operate according to the prophecies of the Bible, as we've talked about with lightning from the throne of God, that the lightning should be considered part of the kingdom, part of Bitcoin, and that when we refer to Bitcoin or paying with Bitcoin or using Bitcoin, that that should include lightning payments just as a matter of assumption. That's part of the overall system of Bitcoin and how it operates. That's part of its design. And this so-called scaling problem is not a problem. It's a design feature. It is the restriction. It is the law, the restriction, the law of God reflected in the monetary system. The law of time, the limit of time, the restriction of time as manifested in this financial system of Bitcoin. And just one last point on the topic of time. Everybody knows that if any imperfect human being were to have access to a time machine, they would cause problems in the timeline that would result in paradoxes that would, in essence, destroy the universe. That's pretty much the subject of every time travel movie. And therefore, we need this limit. We need to be limited in time. We are not allowed to time travel. That is a fundamental law of the universe that we humans are actually lucky to abide by because otherwise we would destroy ourselves because of our imperfect ability to navigate through time in a way that wouldn't destroy the universe. This is fascinating stuff and it's deep stuff and I wish I could elaborate on some of these topics even more, but I don't want to stray too far from the overall topic of this episode, which I didn't really know what it was going to be in the beginning, but it's kind of taking shape now. All right, so, but I, I did, did want to mention that, that it, that's, it's important to really accept, to understand and accept the fact that the limits that time imposes upon us as human beings are there for our good. Obedience to the law of God is truly good for us. And in the same way, following the laws of the Bitcoin network, including the time restrictions and the block size restrictions, these are all important things that are good for the overall health of the system. All right. So, and, but we have things like the Lightning Network that allow us to use Bitcoin in a way that doesn't work against those laws. And so, for example, if the ordinal inscriptions and the BRC20 tokens and all this stuff, if this could be implemented through the Lightning Network or through any kind of layer two solution that provides the functionality in an efficient way, then we wouldn't need these high fees that we're currently seeing on the base chain. And so ultimately, that problem will work itself out as people find cheaper ways to accomplish the same thing. If you can transmit a JPEG and pay for it without, you know, with lower fees over the Lightning Network, ultimately people are going to find that advantageous as compared to recording an inscription with the whole block of data on the blockchain itself. And I know there are some subjective reasons as to why people want to have data on the blockchain, in the cloud, so to speak, preserved for all eternity, but, you know, that comes at a cost. And ultimately, you know, this is another thing I kind of wanted to mention in this episode is that when, whenever we're talking about ordinal inscriptions, whether they're good or bad and all this kind of stuff, one thing that kind of has bothered me from the beginning 
is the fact that a lot of the content that's being put on the blockchain is really garbage. Not just in the sense of being useless, worthless, but in the sense of being positively degraded. I'm talking about the, you know, corrupt pornographic content of some of those pictures that people are putting on there. And that particularly bothers me because of how I see Bitcoin in connection to the Bible, in connection to the kingdom of God. And I really hate to see that kind of trash put into the immutable ledger, preserved for eternity, in essence, on the Bitcoin blockchain. I would rather see much more valuable things put there. But it's important to understand the true relationship of Bitcoin to the things of God. Bitcoin is a system here on earth. It's a system that was developed by mankind. It's not perfect, but it is pretty close. And it's still improving, still getting better. And it has a primary function of serving for the judgment, the final judgment of mankind that God has spoken of in his word. Therefore, the book of Revelation, which is about the final judgment, is so connected to Bitcoin, as we've seen. And, and, and why the, the Bible in its entirety speaks so relevantly to the things that are happening in the world in connection with Bitcoin, as we've spoken about from the beginning of this podcast to this day. And so I really want to emphasize that Bitcoin represents the justice, the judgment aspect of the kingdom of God. It represents the day of judgment that God spoke of all through his word. And I want to just take you to the closing words of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is one of the books of the Bible that was written by King Solomon and is considered a book of wisdom. King Solomon is recognized as the wisest man who ever lived on the basis of the fact that God gave him that wisdom as it is recorded in the Bible. And he closes the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of his wisdom, so to speak, with the following words. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Uh, you know, it might be worth reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 just to kind of give the contrast. It says, verse 1, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that's Solomon. Verse 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, I've always struggled with this particular rendition. It's so hard to kind of understand what is he saying in common terms. How would we express that today? I would say, it doesn't matter, says the preacher. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. Okay? And that's something that <laughs> in the Bitcoin world, you could say. That's what people do say. Like, for example, when ordinal inscriptions came, people were angry against it. Other people were very much in favor of it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the ones who really understood Bitcoin basically said, it doesn't matter. They said what the preacher said here. They said what the wise man said, the wisest man who ever lived. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. None of it matters. Why? Because Bitcoin will work itself out. All these problems will be solved. The market dynamics, the increase in the transaction cost, all these things will play out. And eventually, people will find out what the most cost-effective way to transmit a JPEG is. 
and to record ownership of it. Okay, all these things will work themselves out. And now with that context to what to how King Solomon introduced his book, let's go to the last two verses and see how he concludes this whole thing. He says, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This ties into what we were just speaking about, about the law of God seeming like a restriction is really for our own good, and that all we need to do is keep his law. That's the conclusion of the whole matter, according to King Solomon. Verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So here we have the day of judgment being brought into the scene in the conclusion of the whole thing. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Because there is a day of judgment coming where everything will be brought into judgment, whether good or whether evil. Now, if Bitcoin represents the judgment of God, then it stands to reason that everything that is brought into judgment, that is brought into Bitcoin, everything that matters in any financial way that ultimately comes into the Bitcoin network, everything, whether it be good or whether it be evil, comes into judgment on the Bitcoin blockchain. Time will judge those JPEGs on the Bitcoin network. Future generations will look at those inscriptions and either extol or condemn those who made those inscriptions as being good or evil. And so as a system of judgment, Bitcoin necessarily needs to process both the good and the bad. And I find that to be a helpful thing to understand in order not to be personally offended by some of the kinds of data that's being stored on my node, so to speak, because every node runner is storing a copy of the blockchain, including all those nasty JPEGs that are on there, okay? But when you understand it in the context of the judgment, then you understand that everything, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, is coming into judgment through the Bitcoin blockchain, through the Bitcoin network, including every secret thing. And that speaks to the more private transactions that go through the Lightning network. In that case, not every detail is recorded on the base chain, but still, the overall financial exchange, the overall financial value in some total, when the channels are finally closed and settled on-chain, even the secret things are brought into judgment. So I find that fascinating, how this all ties into the judgment, and how Bitcoin serves as the system that brings judgment, that brings justice to the world. Okay, so... With that understanding, I'm less concerned about the content of individual ordinal inscriptions or the meaning of all these BRC20 token transactions, and I'm more concerned with the fact that Bitcoin remains a just system, one that executes justice as it should be executed. And this brings us back to the argument over the ocean mining pool. And some people are against 
the ocean mining pool because of the fact that it is censoring ordinal inscriptions uh, and also some collateral damage there is that it is uh, filtering out some of the privacy transactions like for um, coin mixing and things like that. And I haven't delved too deeply into that subject other than to understand why they are concerned with the direction that ocean mining pool is going in that way. And I would just say that, yeah, at the in the immediate term, it might look like they are imposing this censorship. But in the long term, Ocean's goals are not to censor per se, but to return the balance of power back to the miners, the, the hashers, so to speak. And one of the motivating reasons for that is because all of the other mining pools are allowing ordinal inscriptions and BRC20 transactions to clog up the blockchain indiscriminately just because they're paying a higher fee. They are non-discriminate. They are indiscriminate, which is also an evil in the eyes of many people. So censorship and non-discrimination have another side that is usually not talked about. Usually it's said that discrimination is bad categorically. And on the other hand, it's said that free speech is good categorically. That's usually the way the arguments are made. Of course, there are there's the other camp that believes the opposite, but it's all it's usually seen in a black and white kind of a way. You're either in favor of censorship or you're in favor of free speech, and usually there's no gray area. And likewise, people are usually either against discrimination or in favor of discrimination, and there's really usually not any kind of a gray area. But the truth is, there is a gray area. There is a place for discrimination, and there is a place for censorship. It's just not in the way that we are typically made to understand it. And now I want to give some examples. For example, in recent years, there have been some contentious cases of discrimination that have been brought to the courts and treated in what I think is the wrong way in the name of non-discrimination. Case in point, the baker who refused to bake a cake for a gay couple. This was labeled as discrimination. And you could say fairly, okay, yes, that is discrimination in a certain sense. But it's also, I believe, the freedom of the proprietor to decide whether he's going to make that cake or not with that content on it, promoting that ideology or not. I believe a baker is free to decide if he's not going to bake a particular cake with a particular design on it. Yes, it is a form of discrimination, but it's also a form of freedom. But it's no different than, for example, stores that say, no shirt, no shoes, no service. That's also a form of discrimination. They're discriminating against anybody who doesn't come in properly dressed. You know, different businesses have different reasons for taking or rejecting a particular job. And the personal beliefs of the proprietor can be a factor in that. That's perfectly okay, in my opinion. But the other side of the coin that people don't talk about, it's a free country, theoretically. So anyone else out there is welcome to run a cake business and serve those customers that are not served by the first business. 
and arguably they could do very well at it because they should be getting revenue that is being turned down by the first business. So that's how the free market should work. And at the same time, it allows for personal morals, personal discrimination in regards to the work, so to speak, as it should be. And mind you, this type of discrimination is not the same. It is good that we have non-discrimination laws that say uh, you can't turn away a customer just because they're black, for example. That's how it all started. Or you can't turn away a customer just because they're gay, for example. That in and of itself is good. But the discrimination here that's being exercised by the Christian baker, for example, is not discrimination against the person. It's discrimination against the work that the person is asking the baker to do. If a gay person walks in and asks for a normal wedding cake with a man or a woman on it, then one could argue that the Christian owner of the shop has no reason and no right to discriminate against a customer in that case. The discrimination is about the work that's being done, not about the customer himself. But if a customer, any customer, asks for work to be done that is contrary to the values and conscience of the proprietor, there should be no law forbidding the proprietor to turn down the job. That's a different kind of discrimination. That's discrimination of the work, not discrimination of the customer. So it's important, I think, to discriminate between the different types of discrimination and recognize that it's healthy to have a law against discrimination in a certain sense, but not in every sense. Okay, so I hope I've made a good point there. And the reason I emphasize this is because coming back to the topic of mining, we also have this similar kind of a case in terms of censorship. We have mining pools that are not censoring at all, but we have some miners that are conscientious and they do want to censor certain transactions. They don't want to work, provide their hashing power for the accomplishment of things that are against their conscience, so to speak. And they should have the right to put their efforts toward the type of work that they want to put their efforts to, just like the baker who doesn't want his efforts to be spent toward a cause that he doesn't want to support. And so in that way, the ocean mining pool has every right to censor, or better said, the miners who have pooled together in the ocean mining pool have every right to censor the transactions that they don't agree with. That doesn't change the fact that it's an open market and that there are other mining pools out there that can mine any other transaction that they want to mine. It's still a free and open system. And ultimately, if nobody else will mine your transaction for you, start mining and mine it yourself. It's a free world. Bitcoin is a free world. And so I find the arguments against ocean mining pool on the grounds of censorship to be baseless because it's a free world and there are many other pools that mine transactions and you can always start your own if you don't agree with the particular censorship that's going on in one pool. The problem, the real problem comes into the fact that when these pools are centralized, 
then it becomes possible for government powers to censor transactions. And that is where it's dangerous because you can have universal censorship across all mining pools just through government regulations. And that's what must be avoided. That's what must be fought against. And that's what Ocean Mining Pool is ultimately working against. They're working to restore the sovereignty, so to speak, of the miners over their own work so that when they are contributing hash power, they have proportional influence into the construction of the block that they are working towards producing. And that puts the power of censorship in the hands of the miners rather than in the hands of the mining pools or ultimately in the hands of government regulators. And as long as the decision is in the hands of the workers, the miners, and those miners are distributed all over the world, then censorship is a non-issue because one miner can censor whatever he wants to censor and it's not going to affect the free market. Or one mining pool can censor whatever it wants to censor. In other words, it's not important if transactions are censored in one block as long as it's free for the next block to include that transaction. And as long as the market is open for any number of miners to compete for the next block, for the rights to determine what transactions go into the next block. So I hope that kind of diffuses the contention about censorship and the ocean mining pool in your mind, because that's not really the issue here. The issue is who has the power to censor, and it should be the one who produces the block, and it should be that the competition remains open for who wins the next block. As long as those critical principles are maintained, then the censorship issue is a non-issue. It simply becomes a matter of individual conscience of the miner as to what transactions are included in a block. And I don't know from a technical perspective exactly how the ocean mining pool is planning to distribute that block construction amongst the many miners in the pool, but I imagine that the scenario would be that in proportion to your hashing power, you would be allowed to specify that weight of transactions that percentage of transactions by weight in the block. So for example, if you are a miner who has 5% of the mining pool, then you should have the freedom to choose 5% of the transactions by weight that go into that block. That's how I imagine it. I don't know from a technical perspective exactly how that's going to work with the ocean mining pool. That's something that's still in development and that remains to be seen how that works out technically. But in principle, their initiative is going in the right direction in comparison to all the other mining pools, which are tending more and more towards centralization and which will ultimately come under the thumb of government power without some reforms being made. Okay, so I just wanted to cover that um, as well in this episode. And I think we've been going for a while here. And at first, I didn't have any idea what I would be able to talk about today. And it turns out that we've had a very interesting, a very fascinating and a very packed episode, I think, with important topics that relate very much to the foundations of the kingdom of God 
and how that's reflected in the system of Bitcoin here and now in the computing cloud of distributed Bitcoin servers or nodes. Okay, so I think that covers it for today. And I hope this episode was a blessing for you. I hope that it really serves to show how some of the critical features of the Bitcoin network really dovetail with the description of the holy city and the foundations of God's kingdom, and that you can understand that the limitations, the apparent limitations of the Bitcoin network, just like how God's law sometimes seems to be restrictive, is ultimately for our good, and that ultimately, like King Solomon said, nothing really matters except to be obedient to the law of God because he will bring every work into judgment. And that's what Bitcoin is doing, is it's bringing judgment, justice to this world. And for that, I am very happy. And I hope you are too. 